Hello, and thank you for joining Fisher Phillips' later podcast series, focusing on all types of issues dealing with the future of work. In this podcast, we will tackle issues like workplace privacy, trade secrets, social media in the workplace, and generally anything having to do with the new normal workplace. My name is Dave Walton. I'm joined here by my partner, Brent Cosro. Brent and I are both partners at Fisher Phillips. We're both based in our Philadelphia office, but everything that we're gonna talk about deals with national topics and of course, a national scope. We're here to talk through recent developments and offer some practical perspectives to help demystify what can really be sometimes complex areas for employers to stay in front of. We are here today focusing on the recent Supreme Court decision in Van Buren versus the United States. This is a very important decision under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Brent and one of our other partners, Usama Koff, in our uh, Irvine office, have written a very informative uh, article uh, on the Van Buren decision, and uh, Brent is obviously an expert on it. So I'll just uh, kick it off by just asking Brent, what happened in Van Buren? Good afternoon, Dave. Uh, Van Buren is a really interesting case that involved the conduct of Nathan Van Buren, who was a police officer in Cummings, Georgia, who was one day going through the police department's computer database that had all sorts of information about drivers in Georgia, their license plates, uh, criminal records with respect to automobile and the DMV down there. And Van Buren uh, was approached by someone, by a private citizen, or so he thought, to go um, sell some of that information to this person on the side. This was not authorized by departmental policy. It was not authorized by training that Van Buren had been through. And unfortunately for Van Buren, this was an FBI sting operation. And he got swept up in the sting, was arrested and charged with a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Um, and for those of you out there, uh, it appears at 18 USC section 1030. And Van Buren, um, he was charged with other things too, but but for the purposes of today's discussion and the case, he um, was found guilty and that decision was affirmed on appeal. And then Van Buren appealed it to the United States Supreme Court, which granted certiorari um, and on, in, in early July issued its decision in which the Supreme Court reversed the decision, um, freed Van Buren in what looked like a very pro-employee decision and said um, he did not violate the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Um, just before we get too deep into it, uh, what is the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act for our listeners who may not have dealt with it previously? The Computer Fraud and Abuse Act is, is a really interesting piece of federal law, which originally was federal legislation that was designed to protect um, computers engaged and used in interstate commerce from hacking. So it was sort of a federal anti-hacking statute. And for the purposes of employers and our clients and, and lawyers who work in the employment law space, what we've seen over, over the, the, really the, the end of the 20th century and the first part of the 21st century has been employers using the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act as a way to protect workplace computers. And this is what made Van Buren so fascinating. There was, it did several things, first of all, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act had, does not specifically say that it regulates the American workplace or that it's meant to apply to the relationship or the interaction between employers and employees. So 
that was the first thing that Van Buren did, which is basically proceed under the, the presumption and, you know, conclude that it does apply to the American workplace. That's a much bigger deal than people appreciate, but it was not the explicit holding of the case. The explicit holding of the case focused on Van Buren's conduct specifically and the computer he used and the information on it. But that statute also had a problem coming into the Van Buren case, which is there was really two schools of thought within the federal judiciary in the United States. The first school of thought said, this statute is more employee centric. In other words, they took an interpretation of it that really focused on what, what the employee did and what the employee's purpose was. There was another school of thought that was more employer centric and really seemed to say that employers could almost define whether there was a violation of the statute by writing policies, having employment agreements or specific language that prohibited employees from doing certain things with computers. And that split um, was one of the few really old school circuit splits that we learned about in law school. And it certainly applied to this and needed to be resolved by the U.S. Supreme Court when Van Buren got up there. So well, what did the court say uh, about this split and what was its holding? So the court did resolve the split, but it did so in a way that I think has gotten a little bit less attention than it should. Um, and you know, the Supreme Court, uh, as it often does, it, it sort of resolves these cases. There's, there's what it does on the surface, and then there's what it does to set up the future. And these are very subtle things, but the court in Van Buren absolutely did that. It set up sort of the future of this litigation under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and how employers and employees are going to ultimately um, litigate and, and sort of do battle in America's courts uh, under the statute. So the court resolved the split in a superficial way by reversing Van Buren's conviction, freeing him, and holding that he did not violate the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, fascinatingly enough. However, I think that that decision, disposition of his criminal conviction is a little bit misleading because what the court ultimately decided was, look, Van Buren was authorized to use the DMV computer system as a part of his job. That he, he, was, he used it every day. And he had access to every piece of information and he was authorized to access the information. And the departmental regulation and training that he violated had to do with the purpose of his use. In other words, if he used it for an improper purpose, that would violate this regulation. And the federal government argued that's how he violated the Computer Fraud and Abuse okay. Act. The Supreme Court, however, said you can't really regulate purpose. Purpose is not part of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. What the, what, what the majority of the Supreme Court concluded through Justice Comey Barrett's very carefully written decision is that Computer Fraud and Abuse Act's real trigger has to do with whether or not there's access, whether or not there was authorized access first to the computer and second, as it pertained to Nathan Van Buren as an employee, whether or not he, had, he was authorized to access the specific data that was in the computer that he sold. So Van Buren had the proper access or the authority to access because he had a username and password to, the, to get on the system. Correct. Right? That's okay. correct. And once he got on the system, then for purposes of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, 
he had access to that information. So if he did something improper with that information, then there was no violation of the, of the CFAA. Right? That's exactly right, okay. Dave. And you know, one of the things that the Supreme Court's decision, and, and just for the record, so, yeah. so that everybody has this little piece of housekeeping, this is a six to three decision, which had a really interesting lineup. Uh, Justice Thomas wrote for the minor, for the dissent. He was joined by um, Justice Gorsuch and Justice Alito. What the majority ended up concluding in Van Buren was that the way we determine if someone exceeds their access, their authorized access, focuses on whether or not the employer has taken specific steps to say to the employee, you are not allowed to access this information, the specific electronically stored information residing on a protected computer. Now, in this case, there was no such restriction. Van Buren was free to use the information that was in this motor vehicle database any way he wanted to. Um, there was no restriction on it. And the court also, interestingly, and I, I alluded to this earlier and how the court sometimes subtly sets up the next stage of litigation. In this case, the court did it in a not so subtle way. It explicitly dropped footnote eight, which I think is gonna be the subject of a lot of discussion um, as we move forward as employment law practitioners. Footnote eight specifically says, look, we as the court are not going to address today the specific question of what steps an employer has to take to lock down data residing on a computer in order to trigger a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And this is what's really fascinating about it. The court sort of embraced this argument that Van Buren made in his appeals, which was that, look, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, it's a gates up, gates down approach. And, and that's, that's gonna become sort of the watchword, I think, of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act going forward. Did the employer put the gates down, uh, invoking the metaphor of an old school medieval castle? Yeah. Uh, was the gate down preventing the marauders yeah. from, from coming yeah. into the castle and pillaging? And in this instance, the, the Georgia Police Department in Cummings, Georgia, did not put the gates down. On, on this specific area of on area or the type of information, right? That's correct. Right. Yeah. So, so the gate was up that allowed Van Buren to access the system, but there was no, say, smaller gates that were down on certain categories or, or types of information, correct? That's correct. Now, it's important to note that there was never an argument by, by anybody in the case that Van Buren was not authorized to access the computer system in the first place. This is significant because the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act has really two uh, two sort of layers of, author, of authorization to it. The first is, were you authorized to access the computer in the first place? Um, that's significant. We, we see cases in employment land where, you know, a former employee tries to get back into a workplace computer yeah. after their employment's ended. No, that's not authorized. Yes. Period, full yes. stop. Um, and that looks and feels and has the texture more or less of a hacker. We also see cases where um, competitor employers will hire someone away and they'll maybe have that employee who they hired away get back into the system. Yes. Well, that's not, that's not authorized either. Yeah. But this other prong um, under 1030 uh, subsection A2 of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act involves exceeding authorized access. And yeah. that's the second gate yeah. you just referred to. Okay. And then, so what do you think this gates up, gates down approach means for our clients moving forward? It's a great question. And, and this is one of the cases where the court has given 
a very clear signal to employers, which is you better take a hard look at whether your gates are up or your gates are down with respect to your employees. So we start from the premise that if an employer makes the, the, the corporation's computers available to an employee, um, then the first gate's up. They're authorized to use that machine for the purposes of work. Then the question is, is there any type of restriction of ESI that is residing on, used, or stored in that computer? That's the focus of the Van Buren decision. And what the court has said is, that gate is not down unless there is some type of restriction or prohibition with respect to specific ESI. And that's the key. So employers now need to consider the following. Do we take a look at contractual restrictions? So in an employment agreement, do we say you're not authorized as an employee from accessing this data or that data that reside in our system? Or is it in a policy, for example, a workplace policy? Maybe there's a pop-up screen on a computer that specifically says, unless you are a member of such and such department, you are not authorized to access these data. Maybe there's just a password mm -hmm. to folders or, or spaces on servers that only certain personnel can access. Everybody else would have a gates down approach and the gate would only be up to those individuals who have the password or are in a certain department. But now employers have to begin to swiftly move to come into compliance with Van Buren in order to protect their ESI on their protected computers and have the benefit of, of using the Computer Fraud and Abuse yeah. Act post Van Buren. This really shows of the interplay just between all the different worlds of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, trade secrets, and e-discovery, right? And uh, data governance. Um, and so does, does the gate have to be a technical gate or can it be like an administrative gate, like a policy, a contract, whereas the court left that open? The court specifically left that issue open in footnote eight, and this is going to be what gets litigated in the future between employers and employees. Um, there are going to be cases where, for example, an employer tries to come into compliance with Van Buren by having a policy. And sure as we sit here, there's going to be a challenge that says, well, wait a second, a policy isn't good enough. The gate's not really down if you just use a policy. Yeah. And, and that's gonna be the next fight. Now, for, for trade secrets practitioners who, who litigate and live in the world where they're in court arguing Uniform Trade Secrets Acts in the various states or the Federal Defend Trade Secrets Act, this is interesting and it's noteworthy. And I think that where jurisprudence does its work in being harmonized, and I think where the court did some really great work here, it's in creating a, a, a next generation of litigation that's gonna feel familiar both to employers who take steps to protect their trade secrets and to the litigators who use those trade secret statutes. Because if you think about it, whether or not the employer has taken sufficient steps to lower the gate is going to feel a lot like the arguments under the Trade Secrets yeah. Act where employers are litigating, was the information that the employer claims is a trade secret, did the employer take the steps to make it sufficiently secret? Uh -huh. I was just going to ask you that. I mean, you know, because we both do a lot of trade secret cases. So do you think that, well, just let me back up. One of the things we always have to, to fight in trade secret cases is did the employer take reasonable steps to protect the, the information in question? A lot of times, I mean, and I've done this with juries, 
it's just if you have a pop-up that, that says that you have to keep all this information confidential, or if you have a confidentiality policy, a lot of times that is enough to show reasonable steps. But under the DTSA and Van Buren, if employers start using this gates up, gates down, and start to say quarantine specific types of uber sensitive information for lack of a better term, will that have an impact then under the DTSA to show that, well, maybe more employers have to use reasonable efforts to quarantine specific type of information rather than just having a general on the bus open, you shall not use our information for improper purposes. It remains to be seen. And, and the way I tend to think of it is there's a continuum of steps that employers take. At one end of the continuum, employers have policies, they've got maybe contractual protection, they have pop-ups on the screen, and they have passwords for specific folders and files mm -hmm. in the system. At the other end of the continuum, employers might do nothing. And the litigation is going to ultimately determine where on that continuum, between those two endpoints, um, the balance is struck where an employer has taken adequate protection. As is the case in the trade secrets litigation, it's very likely that there's going to be a fact-specific set of, of cases that evolve over time. And that the holdings will be more fact-specific relative to industry, steps taken, that sort of thing. I think the other question that, that, that comes up, that, that your, your last question makes me think of, Dave, is whether or not, what happens, for example, when an employer, like many of our clients, for example, have multiple offices nationwide, and one office is at one end of the continuum, and they take all kinds of steps yeah. to comply with Van Buren, and another office maybe doesn't. Well, then what? Yeah. What does that mean? Um, Justice Comey Barrett, in her decision, didn't, did not address that hypothetical. But that's not so far-fetched. That's yeah. something that we see every day where you know, offices and businesses and employers are trying to have a uniform, standardized approach, and sometimes they succeed, yeah. and sometimes they don't. And the, and, and the question of reasonableness evolves over time. So maybe five, six years ago, it was technologically unreasonable or technologically infeasible to easily quarantine certain types of information and apply different security controls to different batches or types of information. Nowadays, that might be a lot easier to do that. And because it's a lot easier to do that, and Justice Coney Barrett talked about the gates up and gates down, because it's easier to do that, does that change the reasonableness a cal calculus under the DTSA? I mean, I think that's an uh, outstanding issue. That's about all the time we have for today. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and thank you for spending part of your day with us. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact Brent or myself by visiting our biographies on fisherphillips.com. We will be back soon with new episodes and hope you'll join us for those as well. Have a phenomenal day, everyone. This podcast provides an overview of a specific developing situation. It is not intended to be and should not be construed as legal advice for any particular fact situation.